the way we lay out our communities, in my mind, can really be evaluated in terms of how well do they do moving us on that continuum from strangers towards friends? How many opportunities do they give us to have regular encounters with people to the point at which they become familiar? You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, I'm really excited to have Eric Jacobson on as a guest. He's the author of The Space Between, A Christian Engagement with the Built Environment. He also wrote Sidewalks in the Kingdom, New Urbanism and the Christian Faith, which I've also read. He's a member of the CNU and a participant in the Colloquium on Theology in the Built Environment. Eric is a senior pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Tacoma. He received his doctorate from the Fuller Theological Seminary in the area of theology and the built environment. One of my first questions for you, Eric, is going to be, did you make that degree up? Like, does anybody else have this degree or is this something you just uh, did? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, I did kind of make that degree up. Well, it's actually a legitimate PhD, but... Right. uh, Oh, yeah. But you, you the crafted area, that area uh, study. that I worked in is called theology and culture. And a lot of folks who do that degree integrate theology with one of the formal arts. And so there's folks that are studying theology and dance, theology and visual arts, those kinds of things. And so I, I was having a really hard time finding a, an academic home for my research interest. And that was the closest I could find. So I convinced the school that urban planning can be considered a kind of art, or the built environment can be considered a kind of art, a form of art. Civic art is how it used to be called. And so that was persuasive enough to let me work on my degree in that particular program. That's so, beautiful. Yeah, I, was, I think I'm the only one that did that particular integration as a, as a dissertation, though. In the history of thought, you go back to people who propose new things. And I, I think it's great because to me, I felt for a long time that this is an aspect of both ministry and Christianity, but also of the built environment. These are two things that never interact with each other, yet do in such a natural way. Yeah. You know, as I was kind of tinkering around and feeling like an oddball, you know, putting these things together, there there were moments where I felt less like an oddball, where I felt like, oh, actually, I'm not the first in, in some ways. You go back far enough and actually... Theology was a consideration in the built environment. You know, the layout of of Rome as a pilgrimage town. In my more recent book, I play with the origin of the word orientation right. as combining theology in the built environment. That that's coming from oriri, which means east or arise to the east, and it originally referred to the siting of churches. Churches in England being placed with the altar to the east so that the worshipers would be facing that direction. So it was a church was properly oriented when it was placed in its environment in a way that, you know, fit with their theological conviction. So there was, you know, theology in the built environment right there in that word that we still use today. So I, I, there have been moments when it's been less of an odd combination. Sure, sure. I want to step back a little bit and have you tell us how you got involved in this. What prompted you to start asking some of these questions as someone who is in seminary and going through the, and all of a sudden you're asking questions about the built environment. What, what made that connection for you? Yeah, no, and it actually goes a little bit deeper than my professional development. I am one of those rarities that had the privilege of living pretty much my whole life in pre-World War II neighborhoods. So I grew up in a house in which I could walk to school, walk to the neighborhood park, walk to the candy store. You know, as I went to college, I lived in a similar kind of environment. I think I saw my first suburb as a junior in college, my first <laughs> tracked house. Sure. And I, to me, it, it seemed completely alien just the standardized design and the cul-de-sac feeder road layout just seemed odd to me. I think of the pre-World War II neighborhood as normal neighborhood, and I think of suburban automobile-oriented development as weird. That sort of shaped me before any of the theology or, or, or those kinds of things. But it was, it was at my first church, this is after seminary, my first church in Missoula, Montana, 
I'm living, you know, in a pre-World War II neighborhood. Again, that's where we just naturally gravitated to purchase our home, where I can walk to church, I can walk to a coffee shop. And there were a couple of things during that time that brought to my attention that this sort of genteel, sort of quaint lifestyle of walking places and living in these kinds of neighborhoods was more the exception than the rule. There was a controversy with our local coffee shop that they had, you know, changed ownership and they wanted to bring a pizza restaurant in there. It was kind of a neighborhood gathering spot and they thought, well, pizza is as good as coffee for gathering neighbors together. But little did I know that going from a bookstore slash coffee shop to a pizza place would it require a zoning variance for a restaurant zoning. <laughs> sure. And I discovered that that was controversial. I thought it was just a no brainer, you know, for me that this was a good to have this coffee shop just two blocks from all, of, you know, from our houses and whatnot. And in that, I discovered that our quaint little neighborhood was something like 80% non-compliant with the city's zoning codes. At the same time as making that discovery, because we had purchased a house at the right time, the housing values were increasing rapidly in our neighborhood. It seemed to be increasing in our neighborhood faster than everywhere else. And it just struck me that why do our neighborhoods that are non-compliant with the zoning codes seem to be the ones everyone wants to live in? That to me was my first sort of, wow, why have we developed municipal policies that are so at odds with what people want? Right. So that was my first discovery was that, you know, there's a battle to be fought here, that, sure. that the general political climate is that everybody wants to drive everywhere and we need to design cities around the automobile. But that wasn't, there seemed to be at least a, a strong minority voice saying, no, actually we like walkable places and, you know, this is good. So I, I recognize that that was a case needed to be made for that. So that was my first sort of coming of, you know, my loss of innocence, I guess, as a person who likes to live in these kinds of places. And then at the same time, you know, I was serving as a pastor in a situation where not only could I walk from my front door of my house to my church, but once I was in my office at church, I could meet people at the local coffee shop and walk to that location. And on the way to the coffee shop, I could, you know, interact with residential and commercial neighbors. And I kind of knew their names. And that to me was formative in how I worked as a pastor. You know, I saw myself as a pastor, not only within this building of my church, but also a pastor of the parish, the area that surrounded my church. And whether or not these folks were members of my church or not, I still felt a sense of connection and some sense of, you know, these are my people that I need to care for. And that sort of parish mentality is also another place where I think theology and the built environment kind of naturally connect. You know, that the word parish really means sort of a a geographical footprint around a, a particular church and, and, and the church sees itself as as accountable for the whole area, not just the programs of their church. That's kind of a long answer to your question. No, I think it's perfect. I look at the way that our the priests at our church run back and forth. On Sundays I've actually had the priest drive in right before me and he runs in and puts on his vestments. And it's not that he overslept, you know, or has kids like I do where (laughs) they don't want to get ready quickly enough, but he was actually at a different mass on the other side of town. How does the built environment impact the way that you are able to, in a sense, shepherd the flock or minister to the people within your parish? This, you know, might be a little erudite for, you know, hey, some of your listeners. We got a, we got a I, smart group of listeners, so go ahead and hit them okay. hard. Well, I think the culture of modernity, if I could throw one big word out there. Yeah. One of the marks of the culture of modernity is to separate our lives into various discrete components. You know, we have our home and our house is here and then our work is over here and we we have a different set of friendships and people that we work with. And then we've got you know, a sports team that we're part of, and those are a different set of people. And then we've got our, you know, our worshiping community, they're over here. And then we, you know, we have our favorite Starbucks across town. And so everything is sort of segmented. And and we, you know, if we want to be in good shape, we have a gym that we join and we, we go and do our workout things there. And that whole culture of modernity has shaped the way ministers do their job. We go to church on Sunday and we perform this ceremony that people come to. And then during the week, you know, if we want to meet somebody, we have to make an appointment and they come to a special place to meet us. And that's for the purpose of maybe pastoral counseling. And then we have planning meetings over here. It's all sort of precise and intentional. And that can work to some extent, but to my way of thinking, it seems much more organic. And there's something very different about 
yes, having some planning meetings, having a pastoral counseling session or whatnot. That's sort of the, some of the structure of what you do during the week, but there's a lot of stuff that's unplanned. You know, you bump into somebody as I'm walking, you know, to my planning meeting at at a local coffee shop, I bump into somebody and they're like, Oh, Hey, Eric. Yeah. I haven't been to church for a while. And you know, here's my wife's been really sick. And you know, we, we get into this conversation that never would have showed up on my to-do list that week. Or I'll run into somebody who, you know, I don't have, they're not a member of my congregation and, and we'll have a conversation and, and the, you know, oh, you, you're a pastor. I've got a question for you. And they'll ask me a question. And when you move away from that culture of modernity more to an organic way of interacting and, and planning your life, the categories aren't so neat. Now I'm going to a meeting. Now I'm doing ministry. Now I'm, but you're, all that spills out one to another. And it, to me, it's, it's a much more natural way of being a minister. And I, you know, honestly, as I read the the New Testament, it seems to me that Jesus had a similar way of doing ministry. You know, one of my favorite passages is when Jesus gets word that the synagogue leader's daughter is dying and he's got to go and do one of his healings and he's heading that way. And on the way to do that work, which is, you know, on his to-do list, the important thing he's supposed to do, he runs into this other woman who's been bleeding for 20 years and she's a nobody. She shouldn't have get on the agenda of an important person like Jesus. She touches him. And then he has this amazing interaction with her where he heals her and affirms her desire to, you know, have a connection with him. And, you know, all this happens on the way to doing something else. And to me, if that's in some way, if Jesus is in some way, the model of how we're supposed to do ministry, to me, it seems like this organic model where you minister to people, you know, on the way to doing other things is a really legitimate way to think about doing ministry. I think too, as someone who is a member of a church, I've found in my life, just my spiritual encounters have not been ones that I planned. They've been the ones that have like come upon me at at moments, uh, almost when I least suspect it. You talk about in in the book, in your latest book, The Space Between, you talk about the question of whether we are individuals or whether we are a community, I find that to be a very profound question, especially in the prism of Jesus' teaching and and the way that he lived and the communities that were set up, certainly in the wake of his ministry. Why is that an important question for us today? That's a great line of thinking. So we're really, in our contemporary American setting, we are really steeped in individualism this notion that I exist as an individual and I'm autonomous from all other people. I'm, I'm sort of the most important category of, of self-understanding me as an individual person. And of course, I'm not isolated. There are people in my lives, but those people, you know, I, I sort of enter into these contracts, these sort of short-term contracts of I'm lonely, so I'm going to join a bowling league and I'll be will be a kind of community for a while. But as soon as, you know, bowling ceases to bring me pleasure, I can withdraw from that, you know, association very quickly and still pull back to being my independent self. And that, that way of thinking about ourselves is pretty distinct to, you know, the West and a particularly contemporary kind of setting. And, and more traditionally, I think people saw them. I mean, obviously there was boundaries between them themselves and others, but they were more embedded into communities. They couldn't so simply remove themselves from communities. As we have made a lot of concessions to being individuals, there's been a lot of good there. I don't I, I want to be really clear. There's a lot of good about individualism. You know, that's that's why the son or daughter of a of a blacksmith can grow up to become a lawyer. You know, we're not limited by our families. That's why people have a lot of freedoms because of individualism. But as we've as we sort of push into extreme individualism, I think we're finding ourselves feeling more lonely and disconnected. One of the longings that people have is to be part of something larger than themselves, be part of a community that really matters, that really is they belong to. And it's not simply something they can just leave easily. One of the things the church can offer to our contemporary society is a, is a model of a more embedded community. We really belong together in a way. And, and, uh, and, and that's, you know, becoming increasingly rare. So I think that's uh, important that we see ourselves as part of a community. And, and it, that it's hard to express that in terms of the built environment because it's increasingly rare 
to not only be part of a church community, but also be living in the same neighborhood as that community and have a lot of overlap in your lives. And, and it's not just a Sunday by Sunday sort of religious association, but your lives really overlap. There are examples of those kinds of more overlapping communities, and it's pretty powerful. One of the more controversial rulings within the Jewish community was a, a ruling among conservative Jews, which is known as the driving teshuva, which allowed that Jews could drive on the Sabbath. The conservative <laughs> Jews were allowed to drive on the Sabbath. And sure. prior to that, there was a prohibition against driving. And when you can't drive on the Sabbath, it means that you have to walk, you know, for, for Sabbath uh, services, which means you have to live within walking distance of the synagogue. And it was a very interesting debate among the conservative rabbis as they were trying to make this decision. You know, they were wrestling with a drop in attendance because people were living in the suburbs and were living in a driving communities and they wanted to be good Jews and, and go to Sabbath services, but they, they couldn't walk that far. And so this was a concession to try to allow for the synagogue to be part of this suburban model. So they made this concession, and the Orthodox Jews never did. As we're, as we're looking at that debate and how it played out, one of the comments that was made was, you know, being a Jew is not just going to a, a Sabbath service, but it's being part of a Jewish neighborhood, being part of a Jewish community. When we drive to synagogue, we're not just making it more convenient to get to synagogue, we're breaking apart neighborhoods our life together, our communal life is going to be much more fragmented, much more isolated to just the ritualistic kind of part of our lives, not sharing everyday life together. And I think that's, it's really interesting to look at that as a kind of case study of what a religious community might look like. I think that's fascinating. I actually went to Italy for the first time in 2000. As a Catholic, there was a big part of me I was on a, a professional exchange program, so I was going to be there for six weeks. There was a big part of me that was very interested in the Catholic experience of being in a country that was 98% Catholic. And, and my assumption was I was going to be kind of immersed in a society that embodied kind of daily Catholicism. <laughs> that's not how it yeah, worked out. Yeah. <laughs> Needless to say, that's not how it worked out. But I did find that. In 2004, when I was called upon by a group of Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn, New York, to come yeah. in and help them with a project. Here was a, a group living in Williamsburg, New York, okay. extremely high density. The thing that amazed me is how not only living in this community, they kind of reinforced each other on a daily basis with everything from childcare to child rearing to helping the elderly to settling disputes and squabbles that they had. But they, in a physical sense, found places for everything. They found a place for a meeting hall. They found a place for a school, for a synagogue in areas that, you know, we here in central Minnesota would say, you, you don't have nearly enough room for that. Yet they found yeah. ways to make do and it was really beautiful. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's something about proximity that draws out not just, you know, creativity for making things work in space, but draws out a part of our humanity that's good and noble. I think one of the outcomes of this culture of modernity where things are so separated is there, there is a sort of out of sight, out of mind kind of mentality. You know, we live in communities with desperate needs. You know, people have lots of ways that they just are needy, you know, for, for support from the community. And, you know, if I am isolated from, from a day-to-day -day experience of that, it's very easy for me to see that as just a political issue or, you know, oh, I should help them. I should, you know, or label them as, as lazy or whatever. And I don't act in a compassionate way that I, that in some sense I know I should, but when I'm in proximity, it sounds a little bit like this community that you're talking about. And I actually see the need of my neighbor that's got needs help with childcare or needs help with a ride or those kinds of things. And can, and I'm face to face with that. It tends to draw out more of, okay, I'm willing to help here. You know, whereas if it's just an intellectual exercise, I tend to be a little bit more selfish in that way. We had a, a kind of experience of that during graduate school. I had been living in Missoula and we had a, you know, we lived in this neighborhood that I just described. It was kind of a, you know, up and coming neighborhood. We had a house and, and it, our own yard. And even though it was, everything was walkable, we had, we had a fair amount of autonomy in, in sort of the American style. But we, we moved to the, the five of us then, we're, we're six now, but the five of us moved to an 850 square foot apartment 
in, in Pasadena with 90 other neighbors all also living in this apartment complex. And one of the things that was nice about that is we were all students of this seminary. So we all shared some faith convictions and we had some connections there. But in some ways, we look back on that as, as such a wonderful time of community and connection for a couple of reasons. One is we all were kind of poor and needed each other, but we also were in such proximity that it really lent itself to those needs being met and reinforcing our communal ties. So for instance, you know, we had one car at this time and we, we used it a little bit. This, this was Southern California, but it was Pasadena, which is much more walkable. So we walked a lot of places, but we had, we had one car and we had three kids. And so we would have situations where my wife would be in the car and she would be off doing something. And she would call me at home in our apartment and she would say, Oh gosh, Peter's, you know, done with baseball practice in five minutes. Can you go pick him up? I'm at home, no car, you know, in our garage downstairs. And I say to Liz, I say, sure, I'll go get him. So I would put down the phone, walk out of the front door of my apartment, scan the other apartment, see who's sitting in front of their door. And I'd say, Jenny, uh, I need to borrow your car. Right. Literally, while, without standing up, would throw her keys to me. And I would run down, grab Jenny's car, and I would go pick up my kid. I had no question that I'd be able to get a car within one minute of that conversation because we all, you know, did that kind of thing. Or we didn't, you know, another example, we didn't have a microwave, but our neighbor had a microwave. So I would come back from studying, you know, 11 o'clock at night and uh, would have missed dinner or something. And, and Liz would put a plate out for me and, you know, I would just go next door and heat it up. That kind of community doesn't happen very often in our culture where we've got a lot of space between us and our neighbors and we have the luxury of not knowing when there's a need and, and missing an opportunity to maybe meet that need in, in a natural and organic way. Well, you are describing, and I, I want to follow this up with a question to, you know, the Reverend Jacobson as the, uh, as the head of this church, you, you're describing to me a lifestyle choice that has a lot of upside and a lot of things that I, I think even a secular individual could look at and say, I see a lot of benefit there. As a Christian, is there a special call to care for others? Is there a special call to be part of a community? And what is, as Christians, the responsibility that we would have to each other? Yes. The answer is yes. The the fundamental, you know, not just in the Christian tradition, but the Jewish ethical tradition, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, that's embedded in the ethics of the Old Testament. And when Jesus was asked, you know, to summarize his understanding of the law, he he went right to that. Love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. It was kind of the, the how to live out a life that's pleasing to God was was his summary. So yes, there is that that obligation. And what I've observed is that the automobile-oriented culture that we've built for ourselves has given us a kind of distinct way of avoiding that obligation Right. <laughs> in that we can say to ourselves, yes, I'm obligated to love my neighbor as myself, even if that neighbor has significant needs. As soon as I run into that person with needs, I am going to love that person and care for them, right? Right. So you can say that at your breakfast table. And then you go into your garage, jump into your car, turn on the radio, and you drive in this private bubble, you know, on, on fast-moving roads. And then you park in the garage of your office building, get in an elevator, go up, and you see your coworkers that are all are similar socioeconomic status as you are. If, if they have pressing needs, they're probably not going to reveal that to you. And, you know, at the end of the day, you reverse that route. You get home. And lo and behold, you've spent the whole day never – having to fulfill that obligation to love your neighbor because you've never really seen anybody. You know, you've set up a lifestyle where you're not going to bump into somebody. Right. Who really does have you can be a Christian in heart, if not indeed, and still yeah. have it yeah. kind I mean, of You really be, didn't ignore yeah. someone's needs intentionally. It's not like you saw someone that was suffering and you just walked right by them. You just, you just have set up a lifestyle in which that's not going to happen very often. Now I described kind of in some ways an extreme situation where we were all dude very you, you did not but describe an extreme situation. It was interesting because when I went to grad school, I lived in a townhouse complex and we had a garage and I realized after two years when I was done that I, I didn't know any of my neighbors' names. 
And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not an antisocial person, but I just never, I mean, we would wave to him when we drove by. We were friendly, but yeah. I just never had cause to interact with any of them. And, and quite frankly, yeah. the garage door opener would be halfway down by the time I stepped out of my car. And yeah. I was cool with that. You know, it's, it's not like you chose to not know your neighbors. You were, you lived in a place where that was, it was sort of discouraged in some ways to make that connection. I think a lot of people live in that way. And it's, it's really interesting when you look at the origins of the suburban automobile oriented model. It really is in a lot of ways based on this notion that we want to avoid contact with strangers. You know, you can talk about, you know, it's, it's about, preserving real estate values, you know, someone's going to buy a house, but they don't want to have a, you know, a tannery open up next door and plummet their values. But really, at the end of the day, if you look at the Supreme Court case, Euclid versus Ambler Realty, you can see pretty explicitly that it's about avoiding encounters with strangers. I mean, that's that's the purpose of the cul-de-sac in a lot of ways. Nobody's going to be driving down your cul-de-sac on the way to somewhere else. The only one that can drive down that cul-de-sac is one of your six or eight neighbors or one of their friends and if asked, if you say, hey, where are you going? They better know the name of one of your neighbors or they're going to immediately be outed as a stranger. Right. And so the whole cul-de-sac setup is, is, is for the purpose that you're not going to run into anybody that doesn't belong there, someone that doesn't live there. In addition to that garage door, you know, kind of front-loading way of getting into your house, it allows you to avoid even your, your neighbors there. So, so this notion of fearing the stranger, avoiding the stranger is kind of built into our DNA. But I, what I think was not really thought through very well is I sense this rigid category between friend and stranger. You know, strangers are people we don't know and friends are people that we do know. And, you know, we've got a certain set of friends and everyone else is a stranger. We want to avoid all those people. But what I think is not acknowledged is that that's not, those aren't fixed categories. There's a sliding scale there. You know, a stranger is only a stranger until you've had numerous encounters with them and all of a sudden they're, they're an acquaintance and then they may become a friend and neighbors, as you pointed out, don't necessarily mean that they're going to be friends. If you never see them, they can really start being strangers to you. Sure. And so the way we lay out our communities, in my mind, can really be evaluated in terms of how well do they do moving us on that continuum from strangers towards friends? You know, how many opportunities do they give us to have regular encounters with people to the point at which they become familiar I advocate for, you know, things in the built environment that, that allow us to build stronger connections and to minimize the ways that, you know, we, we fail to, to interact with one another. So I think, a, you know, the grid layout for streets is better. It's more social in a lot of ways. Um, fascinating study was done, oh gosh, by James Rojas. He never published it. I wish he would have with the, when he was getting his master's at MIT. And he was looking at the Latino communities in East L.A., and how they modified the middle-class suburban home with a green patch of lawn in front. They modified it to align with their cultural values. And what Rojas noted is one of the things they did is they put fences in their yards, either wrought iron fences or chain link fences. And while you would think putting a fence in your front yard is an antisocial, you know, kind of stay away kind of move, Rojas noted it had just the opposite effect. Because what it did was it moved the threshold from the front door of their house to the front gate of their fence, which meant that, so let me go back. In the, in the middle class home, the threshold to your private space is your front door. Right. And so if somebody wants to meet you or get to, you know, if someone's going to have an encounter with you that you don't know, they walk up that, that walkway, which is a little bit intimidating. They mount those stairs. They knock on your door. And all of us have had the, the experience of opening that door to somebody that you don't know. You open that door, and it's a, it's a little bit of a strained conversation. As you, homeowner, try to evaluate, what are you trying to sell me? You know, are you a political person? You know, the first question you ask is, are, is this a friend that I'm going to let in or a stranger that I'm going to ask, what are they trying to sell me? And when you determine it's a stranger, usually it's a very short conversation, and you're trying to close the door as quickly as possible. It's not a great opportunity to make new friends as somebody comes to your front door in that way. Whereas in what Rojas describes with the yard, with the, not the big privacy fence, I'm not talking about a big hedge or, or a 10-foot fence, but a low fence, like a chain link or a wrought iron, once that boundary is, is created, then the homeowner tends to spend more time in the front yard. They use that as kind of a social space. And as the homeowner hangs out in that front yard, 
they're much more available for conversation and interaction with passerbys in front of their house, right? Because they're, they're visible. Right. So Rojas noted that there's, people have these great conversations. The ice cream guy is pushing his ice cream truck by and he's having a conversation with the, with the guy who's hanging out in his front yard. And that, and that person in the front yard has a clearly defined sense, this is my private space, but it's much more available for social interaction. And Rojas says, if you look at it carefully, it's a very complex set of social conventions that go with that front yard social space. If somebody's feeling like they want to have conversations, they lean on their front gate. You know, they just kind of lean there. Yeah, yeah. And as you walk by, they say, they make comments. If they want to gossip, they go to their side fence where their neighbor might join them there and they, and they spend a little time gossiping. If they don't want to be very social, you know, they might withdraw, you know, to a seat somewhere a little further in to their yard and read the paper or something. But there's, there's all sorts of ways that the homeowner can, you know, regulate how social they're feeling while not feeling, you know, completely exposed to the public world. And so that's, that's one example of a house and neighborhood setup that lends itself to people moving on that continuum from stranger to friend. Uh, very comfortable social setting, very different from our typical house where the front door is the only way to have any kind of encounter with someone right. uh, that we don't already know. And the garage. Yeah. That, that was the townhouse that I lived in. One of the reasons we didn't meet our neighbors was the front was the garage. There was a little door on the side that you could exit, but there were really no windows from the first story that would face your neighbors. It was their garage or your garage. Yeah. Yeah. And that's real typical. So, but it, it really does not, a guy like yourself that's, that's sociable and would be open to meeting the neighbors, it, you have to be so deliberate. You know, and some people do. Yeah. You know, as I, as I sort of talk with folks, you'll, you'll meet people who, who happen to live in those kinds of settings and they're just, my, my hat's off to them. They're just very, um, wanting, desirous of some kind of communal connection. So they'll, you know, maybe they'll go bring banana bread to the new neighbor that moves down the street or they'll go knock on doors or they'll do whatever it takes to work against the natural setting that they're in, which is antisocial right. and make it in, into more of a community. So I, I know that, you know, I got to be careful that I guess one of the discoveries I made, I was, I've been sort of tracking this new urbanism thing for 15 years. One of the discoveries I made is we can do a pretty good job of you know, wrecking community by bad design. You know, we can, we can set up cul-de-sacs and garage doors and really isolate people one from another, but just fixing that and, and making more walkable communities and front porches and all that stuff doesn't immediately lead to people acting neighborly. You know, we've just lost some of that cultural practice of interacting with our neighbors and that doesn't get fixed immediately when we move into a more walkable neighborhood. So there's, I, I see it as sort of a hardware and software issue. Yeah. You got to get the hardware right, but then you got to start changing behaviors. And, and some people are just more, more inclined in that way. And I guess one of my hopes as a, as a, as a pastor and as, with some influence over a community is to encourage folks in the Christian community to be that, that sort of uh, pioneer for neighborliness in their neighborhood. That was going to be my follow-up question for you when, when you said that was, all right, we got the hardware. What is your responsibility as a pastor or my responsibility as a, as a Christian? Or, you know, what, what are we called upon to do to be the software then? What is that step that we should be taking? I think it's fairly simple, but it's just, you know, we're out of practice. I, I think just looking for opportunities to to meet our neighbors and to, you know, get to know them. And I'm I'm not talking about, you know, I, I know that within the Christian community, sometimes that there's a sense of, well, I'm I'm going to go knocking door to door on my neighbor's houses to to try to, you know, evangelize, evangelize or something yeah, yeah. like that. And that that may happen naturally. I'm not opposed to that, but that's not just what I'm talking about. I'm I'm talking about simply making some connections with our neighbors. And one of the there was a book I read not too long ago called The Art of Neighboring, which I thought was a really good, simple sort of study of this. And it, it, it talked about one exercise that you can do is to draw like a tic-tac-toe diagram and sort of put an X in the middle, and that's your house. And then you think about the eight other houses or, or whatever, this is an apartment, you, you do it a little bit differently, but the eight most proximate neighbors that you have. And then you make a list of three categories. The first one is, do you know their names? And if you do, write it in the category one. Secondly, do you know any of the details of their life? What do they do for a living? You know, where are they from? How many kids do they have? Those kinds of basic details of their life. That would be the second category. The third category is, 
do you know anything about them that they would only reveal to somebody that they trusted? What are they afraid of? What are their aspirations? What are they, you know, those kinds of things. And so you kind of make it a goal. You know, you don't want to push yourselves on people. Sure. But you make it a goal to fill in those boxes. And, w- and then you start thinking, how do I do that? How do I, how do I, you know, get, I don't know all their names. How, that's, a, that's my first step. I got to, I got to figure out, you know, and so we, you know, Halloween's a great opportunity. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. our kids get mad at us because we go, you know, we go trick or treating and they're, they're motivated to get candy. And we're always like, Hey, we're the Jacobsons. We noticed that you guys, you know, we're, you know, right. We're Stop we talking. Dad, we're going to go. Right? not talking time. It's <laughs> Halloween. But for us, it's like, this is our, you know, we're not going to just probably knock on their door out of the blue and say, we want to introduce ourselves to you. But in Halloween, you can do that. So we take that opportunity to learn their names, you know, in some neighborhoods, there's a concern about safety. So you, you might call a neighborhood meeting to just meet each other. And for the purpose of, so that we can look out for each other's houses or something like that, but sure. just, just try and find some common needs where people would see a clear benefit of making a connection within their neighborhood. And some people will do, you know, let's exchange telephone numbers and maybe show each other where our water main is and our gas main is. And some people will want to exchange keys. So if you're on vacation and you know, your, your little home detector sensor says you've got a flood, one of your neighbors can go shut off the water, depending on how quickly trust develops, but creating some of those senses of connection where people see the benefit. Those are all pretty simple steps. But as, as we build those kinds of relationships, that becomes then the building block for what might become a deeper sense of community where people will start to share with each other, you know, what's, what they're afraid of, what their aspirations are. And, and then you get that real satisfying sense of this is where I belong. You know, this is my neighborhood. So that's, you know, one way of thinking about it. In the book, you mention the city as a spiritual platform and you talk about how cities kind of evoke our shared history. Why is that an important part of a place? And there's a lot of different ways to, to think about that. And, and I do, you know, as, I, as I've been talking about the built environment, I've kind of, you know, my first book was called, was about the new urbanism. And I, I, I sort of latched onto that terminology. And, and in a lot of people's minds, that evokes a sense of the city and those kinds of things. Whereas my, my second book and more my way of thinking is, is the built environment, both in terms of residential neighborhoods with detached houses, you know, rural environments and the city. So your question, if I'm hearing it correctly, is really pertinent to cities, you know, in, in a sense, the, the more traditional sense of, of the word. And one of the one of the things that I think is important about cities is they do hold our history in ways that, that are really important. The buildings hold a lot of memories. The, the, the monuments within the city reflect some sense of the shared values that we hold. And those are all important I think for our identity formation to have a sense of, of permanence and belonging and, and a holding of our memories. And, and one of the, one of the negative sides of more of the mo- more modern building conventions is nothing is built to last anymore. You know, right. the, the Costco's and the warehouse stores are really built for maybe a 30 year lifespan. And, and so it's, you know, I sort of imagine somebody who grows up in a tracked suburban home and they do their shopping at, at Walmart or Costco and they, their coffee shop is sort of a Starbucks that, you know, they're not going to have the opportunity to take their grandkids to important places from where they grew up because it's very standardized. It could have been anywhere and those places aren't going to exist. You know, those those buildings will have been replaced by other buildings by the time their grandkids come around. And there's, to me, there seems to be a a memory gap uh, in terms of our identity formation. Whereas, you know, traditionally, yeah, someone would want to show someone the the place that I grew up and, and, and show them around. My wife was, was born in Manila. Her parents were missionaries. And just this year, she had the opportunity to take my, one of my daughters back to the place that she was born and the church that they attended and, and all those. And it was a very, you know, meaningful experience to be able to show these actual places to connect those memories for both her identity formation and to pass it on to, you know, her daughter. So, you know, I, I think that's an important part of the, the spiritual platform, I guess, of, of these places. I think you read the thing I wrote earlier this year about the bike lanes at my church. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is a certain passive involvement that takes place 
when you walk by these places, whether it's a, a church with a great steeple that terminates the end of the street, or whether it's the, right, right. the county government building with the Roman pillars yeah. out front that, you know, yeah, yeah. kind of, I think there's something that is communicated just passively to people. I know that there's a lot of different cultural traditions in this country and, and not all of them are, you know, look positive in a reflective sense on our history. But I think right. when you compare that with the Target and the Walmart and the strip mall, those don't have a lot of meaning for anybody. Especially as as we get more polarized politically and maybe pluralistic, you know, in some ways, the easiest go-to for a shared value is capitalism. You know, the, the, the dollar is how we measure value. And if I have more dollars, then I can buy what I want. And But I think most of us, although we concede that's probably the best economic arrangement that we can come up with, most of us don't want to simply be seen as as, as valuable as our bank accounts, you know, that we've got something that's more valuable <laughs> than what we're able to afford. You know, when you walk around the built environment, a lot of what we see is whoever's doing better financially has more influence on what we're looking at. You know, you know the, the larger goods your stores because they've got more money to, to and they've got a higher priced clientele to, to do that kind of thing. And, and that's, that is what it is. But I think what, what you're describing with the pillars in front of the county courthouse or the steeple, it's somebody spent some money here to add dignity and value that's not simply about the bottom line. There's some, there's some deeper value, you know, with the county, with the county courthouse, it's our civic connection and, and the importance of, of justice and, and our collective identity is, is more important than just our individual identity. And the, and the church aspires to a, a set of values. And like you said, not everyone's going to share those values, but maybe you would appreciate the fact that somebody thought it was worth it to do something beautiful that people can enjoy, whether or not they're a paying customer of that thing. That there's something a little broader, more humane in our built environment than, than simply measuring my worth by what I can afford. I think those are important counterpoints, you know, in our, in our culture that's increasingly sort of conceding value to, to economics. You mentioned politics. And I wanted to ask you about this because looking back, and maybe we idealize a little bit, but it seemed to me like there were some greater civic virtues in play, you know, that would call people essentially to serve, to be involved in their community, to help making it run. And you know, yeah. maybe I'm idealizing the past, but gosh, th those things don't seem to be present at all today. How much yeah. of that is affected by or impacted by the way we've built things, the way we've laid out our cities, the way we've chosen to finance our growth and, and that type of thing? One of my sort of teachers on this is Daniel Chemis, who was the, the mayor of Missoula when I was sort of getting up with all this stuff. And he was a very philosophical mayor and he, he thought a lot about politics. And one of his observations is that the further politics gets removed from the local, the more abstract it becomes. And it's easier to sort of get, you know, into these camps that we do between conservative and liberal and the, and the sort of the flashpoint issues that everybody, you know, gets into. And what, what chemists helped me to see is that politics at some level, especially if we're going to heal our sort of political climate, it has to be brought back down to the local level. And so he used the example of the politics of the farmer's market. We've got hippies and we've got the Hmong uh, farmers trying to, to figure out how to share space and sell their wares to a, to a population there. And there's, there's, there's political issues, but they're much more humane. It's hard to really when, when you get into those political conversations about how to regulate the farmer's market, it's really hard to say, oh, that's conservative or that's liberal, that's Republican, that's Democrat, but it's just more humane in, in some ways. And it, I was a political economy major at Berkeley, and so I thought I understood politics. But probably my, my first real political action that was, was of that type was when that coffee shop that I described at the beginning of our conversation, when it, when it needed that zoning variance, I took it up on myself to to walk to my neighbors carrying a clipboard asking them to sign the petition because the way our our city was set up it you know if you got enough signatures of the of the on the petition for the immediate neighbors they would grant a, a zoning variance. So I'm walking with this clipboard knocking on my neighbor's door and I said would you like to sign a petition to allow this coffee shop to become a pizza place in our neighborhood. And that neighbor who I 
gotten to know from neighborly interactions, that neighbor would either say, yeah, I think it's a great idea, or they'd say, no, I don't like that idea because, and they would start to share with me their concerns about drunk college students or delivery trucks or those kinds of things. And I would, I couldn't dismiss those concerns because here was an elderly neighbor that I understood, you know, an ailing wife who's bedridden and delivery trucks would be a problem for them. And I, I couldn't so easily label them as conservative or liberal or, or whatever. They were a human being. Or even selfish or out of touch. I mean, there's a lot of labels yeah. that you can apply to someone. Yeah, so I couldn't easily apply this label because I, I had another, I had a whole other set of associations with this this neighbor. And so I, you know, and, and sometimes I'd persuade them and sometimes I wouldn't. But it seemed to me seemed like a very healthy kind of political dialogue. You know, this is this is chemist, but in some ways we have to learn to do politics at that level, which is really about what is the good life? And how do we get there? And if we can learn to do politics at that level, then maybe that becomes the, the formative piece that allows us to even consider some of the more abstract, you know, citywide issues, statewide issues, I mean, national issues. And that, that, that may be a little bit of a stretch. But at some level, to understand politics in its human dimension first seems to be an important part of recovering the political as a, as a good thing. You know, you go from you know, citizen trying to get this petition to, to maybe wanting to, to contribute, you know, since I, since I have some stake in the neighborhood, if I were to have stayed in that neighborhood, I would, I would have, you know, maybe wanted to be a neighborhood representative at the, at the council or the, you know, it kind of naturally grows from that conversation to some of the more formal offices of politics. And to me, that, that seems uh, a little bit more like what, yeah, that romantic vision that, that you and I kind of vaguely remember from the past. Well, let me ask you this then, as a follow-up to that, you know, we, we have this tradition of separation between church and state. I call it a tradition because it's kind of grown and morphed over time. We've certainly yeah. have been a country where there was a lot of church active in our communities. Given this approach that we have, dividing the secular and the religious, which, which I think is healthy on a, certainly on a national level. What is the role yeah, yeah. of churches at the local level? And that's kind of a broad topic. I, I, I want, yeah. <laughs> I want, no, but I, but, I want to sort of step gingerly in a way. I think it's fair. Um, yeah. You know, in, in some ways, my advocacy is that the Christian community would, would engage in our neighborhoods, not necessarily as a power block, or, you know, representing the church or, or some theological perspective, but just motivated maybe by theological convictions that we ought to care for our neighbors, that then that gives us permission to enter into these conversations and relationships without ever, you know, evoking a biblical scripture. So, for instance, when I'm knocking door to door on my neighbor's house in Missoula to get this variance for the pizza place, I'm doing it out of a sense of love for the neighbor or advocating for shalom in our neighborhood. I'm not going to cite scripture to that neighbor. The language that sometimes used is, is thick language and thin language. So thick language is language that's deeply informed by my deepest beliefs and the complex understandings that I have. So I might form my opinions based on some of those convictions. But when I talk about that with someone who doesn't share those beliefs, I don't necessarily feel the need to give them all the the deep language that's forming me. I can, I can find some common language that, hey, don't we want to have a good neighborhood here? And they may want to have a good neighborhood for an entirely different set of reasons, but we have some commonality in our desire for a good neighborhood. And, you know, my understanding of what a good neighborhood is, is, is based on some theological convictions that humans, you know, are embodied creatures. You know, we were created with bodies for a reason. And so, you know, it's good for us to be able to experience our neighborhoods on foot or on bicycle, because that allows us to smell the trees and to have human face-to-face -face conversations with people that our cars sometimes limit us in. And so it's, my, my convictions are shaped by a theology, but I don't always feel that the person that I'm trying to persuade has to share those same convictions. So I enter into the public debate as a, as a person of faith, but not explicitly. So I, I'd like to see some of that. There, there may be a case for, you know, more, um, collective action on certain issues. But I, I know that so much ill will has been generated when that's done that's been done badly that I'm a little bit hesitant. I'll advocate for bike lanes and I there's actually a bike lane that just got finished in my neighborhood and they invited me to do the maiden voyage and, and lead the neighbors from our church parking lot to the farmers market on the bike lanes. So I got invited to do that. And and I advocated for those bike lanes at the at the business association meeting against, you know, some opposition. 
And I made people knew I was a pastor, but I never evoked scripture in doing that. I just, you know, I just said, this is a really pleasant way to uh, experience our neighborhood. And this allows a lot of people, you know, to access our businesses in our neighborhood that don't own cars or maybe choose to get around on bike. And anyway, so that was a, another political thing that I did that was maybe different from what people tend to think of when they think about Christianity and politics. I actually think that's beautiful. I think it's a great way to put it too. We are essentially called to live Christian lives in our day-to-day interactions with people. It's one of the things where, and I, I go back to the way you described driving out of the garage in the car and essentially having a day where you kind of, maybe not by intention, but just we're not set up to interact with anybody else. And yeah. you can have a Christian belief in your heart, but it's not doing much good if you're not interacting with people in a, in a kind and positive and, and Christian way. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, this has been a beautiful conversation. I thank you so much for taking the time. The book is the space between I'll put a link to it on the website with the blog, Reverend Eric Jacobson from Tacoma, Thanks so much for chatting with us. Well, thanks, Chuck. This is a real pleasure for me as well. I appreciate your work and I appreciate the opportunity to have some conversation about this. Well, thank you for everything you do. And and hopefully I'll make it out there sometime and uh, attend mass at your place. Yeah, I'd love to do that and give you a little walking tour. We've got some great pubs as well as a great church right here in the center. I would enjoy that a ton. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. Thanks. You take care. Talk to you later. And thanks, everybody, for listening, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Now the Word of God dwells within everyone. I want you to let that Word out. Let your spirit... What is it, Ned? The good Lord is telling me to confess to something. An immodest sense of pride in our community. Somebody else...